Hello, everyone. I'm Becca, dietitian by trade, mom 24-7, wife from the start, and when there's a few extra hours in the day, you might find me hitting the trails or on horseback. And I'm Kara, a therapist to women, a mom to a boy, an entrepreneur, mountain junkie, and a postpartum runner. And this is Fit for a Queen, a podcast that's devoted to the female athlete wanting to balance the teeter-totter of all the things we desire out of life as women. Performance, health, intellect, and taking time for self, even if we only get one minute out of the day. We're so excited to be bringing you the queens in the athletic world who have done just that. Okay, ladies, take a seat at your thrones, grab your crowns, and welcome to Fit for a Queen. Welcome back, queens. We have somebody that we have been following for the last couple, well, gosh, it's been quite a bit when we met her at Eating Disorder and Sport Conference. Mm -hmm. Tracy Carson is a three-time University of Michigan alum. Yep, you got that right. Three-time alum, so she's very smart. (laughs) And most recently completed her PhD in epidemiology at the Michigan School of Public Health. Her dissertation research focused on the mental health and eating disorders in collegiate athletes. Currently, Tracy lives in Brooklyn, New York with her dog, Lucy, where she is working as a postdoctoral research fellow at NYU Population Health Sciences. In her free time, she enjoys cycling around NYC and exploring all the coffee shops the city has to offer, and I bet there's quite a few. Mm -hmm. Welcome, Tracy. We're excited to have you. Hi. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's great to chat with you again. How are you liking your transition to New York? New York. Yeah, it's a huge transition. So I I grew up in Michigan, and the last 10 years I was at the University of Michigan, so Ann Arbor. So moving to Brooklyn during, still during the pandemic, is just a major life change. So I'm just trying to give myself some grace and time to adapt to my new life here. But I'm lucky to have my little dog with me, (laughs) a couple of friends around the city to explore with. So that's that's made the transition a little bit smoother. Yeah, I bet so. I've heard about that at the city. It takes a little bit to get used to. But once you do, it's like you can never leave because you're just in. So that's what I've heard about it. Yeah, there's there's so much to explore and see. There's never a dull moment. So um, that has been amazing but also overwhelming at times but where I know that I'll I'll get there in time. (laughs) I'd love for our listeners just to hear a little bit about your journey as the athlete and your personal lens into disordered culture and sport like what was your first introduction and what made you passionate about this to then pursue it as your career? I once had someone tell me that a lot of people and and their PhD is their research is me search. So (laughs) that was very true for me. So my, my research was my personal experience and I grew up as an athlete. I was always involved in sports since I could walk essentially. And then in college, I was on the rowing team at Michigan and throughout middle school, high school, I, you know, upon reflection definitely was disordered with my food and, was really obsessive with exercise and training. But in college, I started to really spiral into some serious disordered eating and over-exercise. And I really thought at the time that it was so normal. It was so normalized in the context of collegiate sport. And I was I was really praised for the way that I ate and the way that I trained. So I was really just in denial for years about the way that I was treating my body. And really kind of just gaslighting myself about the way that I felt. I thought that was just how you were supposed to feel and operate as a collegiate athlete. 
And so by the end of my time in college, it was really the end of my junior year, my body really just gave up and I had to confront what was going on. And that's when I first sought out therapy and treatment for my disordered eating or my eating disorder, really, and decided that the information I wish I had in college is what I wanted to do for a career. I wanted to do research and enter the public health space and focus more on prevention rather than treatment, because I saw so many opportunities throughout my time in sport and also watching my teammates and friends in sport different periods where if there was intervention, I know a lot of us could have been healthier, happier, had longer careers in sports. And so that's when I pivoted towards public health. So I get a kind of PubMed weekly daily in, in Google alerts. And so I'll be darned if one doesn't pop up and it says Tracy Carson on there. And I was like, Ooh, I can't wait to, to read this. And one of the things yeah. that really struck me and I reached back out to you was I felt like it was one of the first articles that really got personal stories and mm-hmm. how athletes kind of got lost in the weeds where they did get kind of, you know, drugged down by disordered culture. And so that's one of the things I really wanted our listeners to hear was some of the things that you pulled out from your research. And I know there were two big areas. One was like that sport body ideal and body image norms and some of the myths that exist in sports. So can you share with them some of the things that you learned from those that participate in your research? Yeah. So I, you know, it it can depend on, on the sport, what those ideals look like, but I study distance runners. So in that population, the, the myth that I heard women talk about, you know, since that they were taught at a very young age is the lighter you are, the faster you will be. And so when you're told that as an eight year old girl, that really is going to stick with you, especially if you are kind of a single sport athlete, your whole life is running, which a lot of these women they reach the division one level. So they were single sport athletes most of their life and learning that message at such a young age is problematic for a lot of reasons, but that, that kind of myth that the smaller, lighter, skinnier you are, it really is not going to allow you to have a sustainable career in sport. And your body is going to reach a point at which it's going to either shut down emotionally, psychologically, and or we're going to see a lot of injuries, which is what is so common in that sport is that under eating, overtraining, over a chronic time period, injury is inevitable. And a lot of times those injuries are severe. They're severe stress fractures, pelvic fractures, like very intense injuries that are not easy to come back from, especially when your body is in that low energy or deprived state where recovery is very challenging. Mm -hmm. So women are kind of falling into this trap of believing that if they're small, they'll be better, period. And that might unfortunately work for a short amount of time, but it certainly is not sustainable. And we see a lot of women and their careers on those types of injuries because they were in that low energy state for, you know, 10 years, five years, three years even. Yeah. It, it's so interesting how many myths are out there. We, we were actually talking about this kind of in a peer consult group. Do, yeah. And I always challenge, like, do you actually know that to be true? And whether it's the athlete, mm. the coaches, they're like, well, and then they really can't. But yet that's a myth that's probably stood the test of time for Absolutely. 60, well, 
back when they thought when women ran their vaginas came out. Sure. But, yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, that myth even lasted for quite a while. that one out. <laughs> Still to this day, we're going to be trying to debunk that, that myth, so... Yeah, Tracy, and you also talked about this power dynamic between the athletes and coaches. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research you've been doing on that and then what, what came out of that research? Yeah, so in that in that same paper, it was it was really interesting and that's I wanted to touch on earlier too why I wanted to do a qualitative study on this instead of quantitative and allowing women to really share their experiences instead of, you know, asking them via survey is really limiting a lot of the time and what types of answers people can give. It was incredibly rewarding to sit down with women and just give them the floor and ask them what their experience was like in their sport. And one of the things that really came out of those interviews was this power dynamic issue between athletes and coaches, especially at the collegiate level. It was interesting. A lot of women um, had very positive experiences with their high school coaches, but then in college, that dynamic really flipped and it felt much more like a business like mm-hmm. environment. Mm-hmm. And, and women were really struck by this feeling of their coaches having a lot of power and control over their success in the sport. And even after college, what their success could be in the sport. Mm-hmm. And that led to a lot of women acting in ways to get that approval from their coach. And a lot of times that was communicated via, you know, losing weight to be a better runner, or they thought that that was one outlet in which they could get that attention and approval from their coach to be, you know, the best competitor and get the best training and attention from their coach. And I think, you know, a major issue in this area is that generationally the sport culture hasn't had any major interventions where we're seeing, you know, anyone really come and speak out until recently, you know, we've seen not only with the Olympics, but Mary Kane's story a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago was really one of the first times we saw not only Mary Kane, but other women speak out about those issues with the coach athlete power dynamic, how they were treated in the sport. And I think it's not until we keep having those conversations and we have like a cultural shift that the future generations of athletes are going to be treated better and their health and mental and physical well-being are going to be prioritized, not only their performance outcomes. But I think the issue in the past has really been this generational effect of, well, I was treated this way in the sport. This is how we trained. This is how we, you know, existed in this culture. And so as a coach, that's what I know. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to treat my athletes. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of working towards that like systemic intervention, if you will, you know, thinking about it from a public health standpoint, how do we intervene on the culture, which is a really big ask and a really big task. But I think it's really necessary to protect the health of future generations of athletes. Yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking about this, this research and getting the athlete's perspective and their story. Because I think when you're an athlete, having this experience, you think you're the only one that has this dynamic or are hearing these things or having this type of relationship with your coach. And that's not necessarily true. It's a a lot of common themes throughout uh, colleges and athletics across the nation. But again, we don't really know this. 
So Tracy, from this, yeah. it sounds like there's kind of two dynamics. There's one empowering the athlete to know better and do better, and then also providing education for the coaches. Which avenue do you see probably being the most proactive? Like teaching, you know, again, this came up recently where it's still in a lot of institutions doing body composition that go to yeah. the coaches. And it's kind of like, well, what, what is that actually going to change performance wise? And so I always teach my athletes, like you can opt out. It is your right to opt out. Do you kind of, did you get any inclining from the stories from the athletes, which Avenue should be pursued first? Yeah. I, you know, I will always go back to like the, the structural changes that can happen. So that will be, you know, within the institution, within the body of coaches, I, I really want to stay away from like putting any of the responsibility on the athletes because they're in such, you know, they exist in this system where they are treated in a certain way where they don't have a lot of power. And I don't want to say that in terms of, you know, taking away the power they do have, but just not putting the pressure on them to call out the system that they exist in. And so I think coach education, but also I think it's going to take policy and structural changes within the NCAA and other, you know, big sport bodies to really, you know, mandate that things like body composition and weigh-ins are not acceptable and will not be tolerated. And I even will go as far to say like punishment for coaches who go through, you know, hopefully there will be more required training and education for coaches on how to communicate about body image, performance, you know, diet and exercise behaviors. And then if they don't follow through on that training and they are, you know, reported to be, you know, saying certain things to athletes or treating athletes in a certain way, that there will be punishment for that. Because I, you know, I will always come from the frame of mind that athlete health is has to be the number one priority. And, you know, we, we know scientifically and even biologically and physiologically that if athlete health is not prioritized, performance will not be sustainable. So Mm -hmm. I think even if there's education around that for coaches, that long-term outcome versus a very short-term outcome that they may be chasing is really what we need to work towards for, for short-term, long-term, and, you know, the health of an athlete across their life course, which is often not talked about or considered in these very competitive sport environments. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. (laughs) Tracy, I know you're probably watching the Olympics too. Do you feel like there is some hope, so much discussion around mental health and the health of the athlete? Do you feel a little bit hopeful that that's changing a bit? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was so emotional about mobiles and even you know Naomi Osaka coming out recently mm-hmm. and talking about their experience as young women and I think of course the reaction that they got publicly online and you know through the media was unfortunately I don't think surprising but I think they are making a lot of people stop and consider what the human element behind athletes who become brands mm-hmm. and I really like applaud those women so much and their like support teams for, you know, giving them the confidence and supporting them in coming out and making those statements about their mental health and prioritizing their psychological health, maybe over, a, you know, one data point of a performance outcome. And yeah, it's incredibly encouraging. And I think, I mean, I, I can't say enough. I, 
I applaud them so much. And I really think young women that are growing up and seeing that conversation and seeing that that is okay are going to already be better set up to engage in, you know, high level sport in their future because they had an example of when enough is enough and when you have to say, I'm worth more than this one event or this one game mm-hmm. that right. I am more than this. I'm, I'm a human first and an athlete second. And I think if we can help women and men and everybody understand that longevity is so important and not just, you know, the one game or event in front of you could potentially, you know, change the culture of sport and how we prioritize training and, you know, our health in various aspects as we grow up as an athlete. Yeah, absolutely. Tracy, I got my master's in public health in 2009. And I would love to hear a little bit more about, I was very interested in mental health during that time. For me, it was very difficult to find, you know, the Mm. hot topics were, you know, tobacco, obesity, wear a condom. That was probably about it. it. (laughs) The three things. And and do you feel in the research, in the public health world, do you think that is changing? Again, mental health was not the hot topic that that everyone was doing research in. How have you felt in that world a little bit further down the road than than when I was in it? Yeah, I wish I could say that it has, you know, changed substantially, but Mm -hmm. That, that's actually something I've been butting up against a lot in my transition from PhD student into postdoc and thinking about future funding yeah. is I, I, re- I really feel passionate about staying in the public health space because I love the principles of prevention and intervention. And a lot of that funding for mental health falls more in psychology and psychiatry and the treatment end of things. Yeah, yeah I, I wish I could say there's been a huge shift, but I even in looking at PhD programs, looking at postdoc programs, mental health in public health, especially eating disorders in public health is such a small, small field. And then those who are working to get funding in that field specifically are are facing a lot of challenges because we're still a little bit, well, not a little bit, quite behind, I think, the curve in terms of where we prioritize funding for things like mental health. And I would love to see a shift of taking funds not away from, but maybe just adding additional funds towards prevention and um, really prioritizing prevention and intervention versus treatment alone. Although it's, it's challenging because, unfortunately, the money is made in mental health treatment yeah. and not, not in prevention. So that's mm-hmm. something that I wish was talked about a little bit more, but I hope that as that field grows within public health, we'll start to see a shift, but it's not quite there yet and definitely not as much as I would like to see. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you're doing the work. Are you, what sort of future research topics, is it all within this kind of field you looking or, but what else are you Mm -hmm. kind of interested in pursuing in the future around these topics? Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm interested in shifting a little more towards younger women. So I think doing work with college age women made me realize even more so that these, issues, if you will, start at a much younger age than maybe we tend to realize. So Mm -hmm. I'm interested in in doing work with adolescent women around puberty, really more interventional, like educational type of work about how the body changes around puberty and why it is healthy and natural to have weight gain around puberty. And, you know, with that, you know, ties to reproductive and sexual health as well. I think puberty in young women is such 
such a vital topic that is so often glossed over or considered really taboo to talk about at such a young age. But I'm really passionate about educating younger women about their body, how it functions, the reproductive changes, the endocrine changes that happen, and how growth and development is so natural, so healthy. And that, you know, applies to female athletes, of course, but also applies to just young women in general. And I'm really passionate about doing that work in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. It's interesting yeah. as my daughter evolves in school and the education and obviously what I've taught her, like, they, they don't spend enough time explaining about puberty in itself, that everybody's on their own timeline, yeah. everybody's body, you know, some people have an increase in weight to generate energy for for bone growth. So that definitely needs to happen because I know in my clinical office, I see way too many young athletes with four stress fractures or they're 17 years old and they haven't had a cycle start. And you start thinking like, when you're that age, you don't think about long-term health. But now as a mom, I think like, ooh, you know, we should be concerned. And I just, that was when I got the first comments on my body from my coach as a, as a sprinter in high school when I was 14. I remember him saying, well, once you get hips, you're going to slow down. And I remember like, I don't really know if I can stop that. <laughs> <laughs> so again, these are where some of those discussions are happening. And it's, yeah, around that we carry with us throughout, you know, our athletic career as well. Yeah. Which should wow, happen, it, by the it, way. I I was faster. <laughs> yeah, and it, it breaks my heart to even hear that. And I think it's really profound that even, you know, later in life, we never forget that one comment no by that way. one coach, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're sitting here telling me that comment back when, and it's like, as women, we don't forget those, those types of comments. Mm-hmm. And it's just, I think it's so powerful. There's a lot of other, I think, issues in, in the sport world, too, around puberty with getting periods, like you just mentioned. Oh, yeah. And how a lot of women see not getting a period as, you know, being a good thing because it means they're really lean. And it's like, I, I don't know that there is the education for most young girls around what that truly means and the implications that it has short term, but then also the potential future implications of that. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, that's, I've always really loved talking about menstrual and reproductive health because I, the female body is so amazing and fascinating. And I would love to just help young women also just feel empowered around it because it is such an incredible process that our body goes through. And it's really like, it's a sign of strength and it's a sign of health and longevity. But I certainly wasn't taught about periods in that way. Mm-mm. And I wish that I had been because, yeah, I also, I was a menorrhea for a very, very long time and was just misinformed for, for so much of that time. And Tracy, I've gone down the rabbit hole of all the literature coming out on how behind we are in research on the woman's body. So, yeah, yeah I'm glad yeah. that you're in it. We, <laughs> we're way behind when it comes to what we know about the men's body. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it goes back decades to, you know, but I mean, in sport research, but just, of course, research broadly, mm-hmm. it, we only knew about how the male body reacted to and, you know, adapted to, to sport training and, you know, diet, different diet behaviors. And then we applied that to women and expected it to be the same when, of course, we know that our hormonal profiles are vastly different, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
but yeah, it's, it's such a, I'm so passionate about, you know, women's health and the intersections of you know, adolescent women, sport, eating and diet behaviors. Yeah, it's just my my passion project, but also hopefully will be here. <laughs> Love it. Well, while you're you're tackling your passion projects, how are you living out the fit philosophy, trying to balance performance, health, intellect, and taking a few seconds for yourself? Yeah, that's that's been a challenge in this transition to New York City, where nobody ever sits still ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It's been a fascinating kind of like cultural shift as well. And recently I've, you know, really like mandated certain nights per week where I just sit in with my dog and relax and unwind. But I've also recently tried to get into some new activities that are exciting and like learning new skills. I just joined a rock climbing gym, which Mm. is something I've never done before. And yeah, prioritizing time with new friends and yeah, trying to hit all the the points on that balance wheel that, you know, I learned in therapy so long ago (laughs) and make sure that I'm, you know, hitting all those, those self-care and balance aspects in my very new life here in New York. Yeah. Well, we look forward to your prosperous career Mm -hmm. and these proactive measures to start educating our younger athletes, grassroots, right? Starting, starting at the beginning. So Mm -hmm. Tracy, thanks so much for coming on and we wish you best of luck in New York. Thank you so much for having me. I always enjoy hearing from you guys and seeing what you're sharing online. It's just, it's great to be here today. Thanks, Tracy. Hope to talk to you soon. Bye. Bye, Queens. Today's episode is brought to you by Yours Truly. I'm excited to announce the releasing of my book, Finding Your Sweet Spot in Sport, Avoiding Relative Energy Deficit in Sport, also known as Red S, by optimizing your energy balance. Be sure to follow me on social media or go to my website, www.beccamacomble.com. Bye, queens. For additional information on today's topic and guests, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fit for a Queen. And Hashtag fit for a queen. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We can't wait for you to join us next time on Fit for a Queen. Bye, queens.